But with some of those details aside, what we also like to do in this season is do a bit of teaching around generosity. Often because we find money has a lot of baggage. Generosity has a lot of baggage, especially when we talk about money and the church. And so already you're thinking of horror stories of maybe weird kind of funky ministries or weird church experience you may have had in the past, and you may come in with some preconceived notions or judgments. And so what we actually do is we gear up for Celebrate Generosity is from the Bible, we teach on a culture of generosity and what it actually looks like to be a generous people modeling the generosity of our God. And so we're taking a couple of weeks to do that, uh, to teach around it and to help give us some biblical framework and worldview, but also to fuel uh, the generosity efforts we have as a family of churches. And what we're doing, taking the next couple of weeks and using, if you've been around Anthem before, a familiar framework to understand what it means to be a generous people and to cultivate a culture of generosity. And it's our framework of of practicing the way of Jesus. And so in short, over the last year and a half, We've been doing quite a bit of work as a church to understand what it truly means to follow Jesus, because to follow Jesus has to mean more than showing up on a Sunday or maybe serving in a kid's room or going to someone's house in the middle of the week. There has to be something more to it. And so over the last year and a half, we've been on and off trying to develop this idea of what it means to follow Jesus, both in our time and our place. But what did Jesus actually prescribe and describe as what it means to follow him? And in short, what we believe about what it means to follow Jesus and the way he himself taught about means to orient your life around three goals. Those three goals are to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things he did. Now, this is the model, this is the rabbinic model that he took. Discipleship in first century Palestine was not an an abstract thing. Uh, It was not even a verb. It was a noun. You were a disciple of someone, uh, typically a rabbi. And when you were a disciple of that rabbi, the whole goal of your life was to orient yourself around these three things, to be with your rabbi, to become like them, and to do the things they did. Jesus grabs a hold of that same model. He grabs a hold of that same frame and uses it to train his disciples and his apprentices. Now, to be with Jesus was the first and most important goal of any of his disciples. It was the baseline for those who would come and follow after Jesus. The reality is the best part of following Jesus is Jesus himself. It's not the stuff you can get from him or it's not the change you'll see in your life. The best part about following Jesus is Jesus himself. To become like Jesus, out of that place of being with him, of abiding with him, the goal was to become like him. That the more time you spend with him, your personality, your characteristics, your nature, your behavior actually conform to his. And so that you would actually become like him. So depending on your spiritual, spiritual heritage, this might have been called sanctification or spiritual formation or something like that. But it is this ongoing process of maturing to become more like him. And third, to do what Jesus did. There is something about following Jesus that goes beyond just knowing about him. There's something that that has to do with following Jesus that goes more than knowing about the Bible and having a lot of good Bible knowledge. If it doesn't actually change the way you live, you have not fully experienced Jesus. 
Because to follow Jesus is to do the things he did. It should transform our very life. We should look at the life and teachings of Jesus as a mirror and to say, how are we doing growing and doing the things he did? And how he treated the poor, the oppressed, how he treated his disciples, his brothers, his sister, how he handled money, how he handled his time. Every part of Jesus, as he's going around healing people, every part of Jesus as part of who we are growing into. So the basic idea here of this paradigm, this framework that we've been working to unpack for a little while as a church, is that following Jesus isn't this sort of passive or intellectual thing. But we take on the posture of an apprentice. So student, learner, disciple, Someone learning not just about their master, but learning to emulate and reflect their master. And our whole life is orienting around being with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things he did. Now, we've laid this out about a year and a half ago, and we've spent that time fleshing out in different ways how that affects our life. And so we've honed in on ideas of a prayer and fasting and worship and what it means to interact with the world around us. And we're actually using that framework to see how that shapes our culture of generosity. What does it look like to be a generous people as we are with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he did? Because the reality is the call to follow Jesus is a high call. It is not a low bar. It's not just simply believe in your mind and that's the end. It's actually a really high call. It's a high call of spirit-filled discipline, of formation, of intentional growing to imitate the life and practices and character of Jesus. He did not invite us into a lifestyle of going to church occasionally when it's convenient for us and that's the end. He did not invite us into a lifestyle of growing in book knowledge and being like the best academic you could be and taking all the seminary classes. He invited us into a life that would wholly and totally change us and the world around us. Paul captures a bit of this idea as he writes to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So something about following Jesus is a death to yourself and a finding yourself in the life and practice of Jesus. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was and is bringing us into a new eternity, but he's also bringing us into a new present where it actually changes not just our forever life with him, but it changes our life with him now. So Paul is saying, let me show you how to live as though your death has already happened. Let me show you what that's like, where your death has already happened and you live with your eyes fully set on Jesus. Paul is wanting us to live with the end in mind. We have been crucified. Now live differently. Live with this end in mind. We are forever with him, and that changes how you live here and now. It's what, as a church, we've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and that's really where we've been the last few weeks, is living with the right end in mind changes how you live in the present, here and now. That's where we've been, living this resurrection life. That there is a glorious hope awaiting you and I, and that changes our daily lives here and now. 
And so even though we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians to unpack this idea around generosity, it very much is dovetailing where Paul has already been around living with the end in mind, and particularly what it means for our generosity, what it means for our generous posture, what it means for our culture of generosity as a people. Because when this is not everything, when this isn't it, and there has to be something more, it changes what we do with the here and the now. And when it comes to generosity, many of us think of generosity as a bit of a transaction, right? I have money, they want money. If you tell me a good enough and compelling story, I'll give my money. And that's often how we think about generosity. It's often how we think about money in the church, money uh, to good nonprofits or whatever. Like if I, if I read a compelling enough story or compelling enough mission statement, uh, then, I'll, then I'll give some money to them. Or if I like really feel burdened or really feel guilted into it, I'll, I'll give some of my money. That is a damaging and unhealthy posture we bring in to this conversation. And so rather than looking at generosity as a transaction, I want to challenge you guys to actually lay that aside, call a truce for the next half hour or so, and to maybe view generosity differently. Maybe generosity is not transactional. Maybe it's the natural fruit of being filled with God's very presence. Maybe it's much bigger, much grander than we can imagine. But I want to start with some why, answering a few why questions. If you're saying, okay, Bert, we're called truce for the next half hour. Generosity is not a transaction. It's a life filled with God's presence. Why, why does money come into the equation at all? Why does God care about generosity? Why should we care about generosity? Why should we care about any of that stuff? And there's a couple of reasons for why we should care about this stuff. Why we should care about whether or not a culture of generosity is being built up in us or not. The first is probably the most obvious answer, and it's like the classic Sunday school answer. It's because the Bible says so. Which is a great place to start, with the Bible stating what we should believe. The reality is, 16 of Jesus' 38 parables or stories he told about the kingdom were concerned with how we handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, the, the four biographies of Jesus, his life, his teaching, and his ministry, one out of every 10 verses, so 288 in all, directly deal with the topic of money and possessions. So while the Bible offers roughly 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, uh, it offers more than 2,000 verses on how we handle money and possessions. Jesus so succinctly said it like this in Matthew chapter 6, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So clearly, money and possessions, how we handle it, is of great importance to God. Why? Second reason, because it displays our kingdom values. How we handle money and our possessions is of great importance to God because it reveals what we believe about God. Do you believe God is generous, gracious, merciful? Chances are you're going to act generous, gracious, merciful. Do you feel like God is stingy, always holding something back? Chances are that's how you're going to live as well. 
author, writer, Randy Alcorn, no relation, although I really love his books, says, what we do with our money loudly affirms what kingdom we belong to. That might be encouraging or discouraging, depending on your life at the moment. But it's one thing to say you follow Jesus. It's another thing for your life to actually look like it. Am I right? Is that where some of the cognitive dissonance around religion comes from today? That you can believe a certain thing, live totally different, and then we wonder why there's like no connection to Jesus. We wonder why people are leaving the church in droves. We wonder why people are having these spiritual faith crises. Because we have made space in the church for such a cognitive dissonance between what we believe and what we do. And our hope is we actually shrink that gap over these next couple of weeks, specifically as we talk around generosity. It's not enough to say we're generous people. We actually have to be generous with our lives. The reality is what we do with our money doesn't simply indicate where our heart is. The truth of Jesus is it determines where our heart goes. You can read that line in Matthew a couple of different ways. It reveals where your heart has already been captured and what you already treasure in life, but it's also telling you it's a pretty surefire way to know how you will be attached to something because your life will come behind it as well. So if we want our heart to be in one particular place or another, then we need to put our money in that place. There's something about the dissociation between saying, I support you, I support this, I support this organization, but never actually backing it with our lives. And there's something different when we actually back it with our lives. Not to get too off track here, but I think that has implications in how we parent a little bit. For those of you who are parents in the room, the reality that you spend thousands and thousands of dollars on your kids probably helps you love them a little bit more. It's true because a lot of your heart is going towards supporting them, taking care of them, raising them, growing them. The reality is where your treasure is, your heart goes with it. Third reason we talk about a culture of generosity a lot is because it's that which most has a hold of our heart. Guaranteed, this is the teaching from me that you will like the least because it will cost you the most. It's the thing that has the most hold of our heart. And it's the thing that prevents us from fully following Jesus. I say, okay, Jesus, you can have my time. Yeah, you can, okay, I won't say any more swear words. Okay, I'll give up smoking or whatever it is. But you can't have my wallet. You can't have my money. That's, that's too much. Well, how are we fully following Jesus if we're holding anything back? And in our time, in our place, this maybe has not been true of all cultures, but in our time, in our place, this is what has a hold of our hearts the most. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as for the rich in this present age, which is just so you know from a global economy, that's you people, just make sure that's clear, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul would not have had to write that if that was not a legitimate temptation for the people Timothy was leading. He would have had no reason to write this if their hearts were fully given to God, their trust fully given to God, but they weren't. Their hearts were wrapped up in money and possessions, and so he had to write to them saying, do not trust in that stuff. It'll let you down. Put your trust fully in God. And Jesus takes it a step further, 
continuing in Matthew chapter 6, where he says you actually can't serve two masters. He says no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He gives us a binary choice. Who will you serve? God or money? One writer has said, your wallet is God's scalpel for heart surgery. Former University of Notre Dame vice president said this, don't tell me where your priorities are. Show me where you spend your money and I'll tell you where they are. Generosity is a means of releasing the stronghold, this like hooks in your heart grip that finances and material possessions have in our hearts. God knew his people would become so attached to temporary things and in turn worship them instead. That more often than almost any other subject, he's dealing with money and how it affects us and how it affects our hearts. Can you turn me down a little bit? It's a little boomy. Fourth reason why we talk about cultivating a culture of generosity is because there is real joy in generosity. I don't know if you've ever gotten to experience true generosity, like giving something away without thinking of yourself at all. It is a joyful moment. And Jesus himself says, Paul quotes him in Acts chapter 20, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not hyperbole. It is a lot of fun to give money away. It's a lot of fun to give stuff away. It's a lot of fun to be able to meet someone's tangible need and further their growth. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive. For me, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. If he says there's actually more blessing there, there's more joy there, I want that. I want to experience that. That's why we call it celebrate generosity, by the way. Like purposely, we're saying we want to be joyful in how we give. We know it shapes our hearts and we want to be joyful on the front end and on the back end as well. Okay, fifth reason. And these are all really important, but this is one of the more important things, especially if you are new to our church. It's who God called us to be. I'm not saying every other church is exempt from this calling. I'm saying God has laid this as a core foundational DNA part of who we are as a church, which means saying yes to anthems means saying yes to a generous culture. We believe God is a generous God we act and give generously even when it stretches us, even when it hurts us. The amount of conversations we've had as a leadership team saying whether we should give money away and not knowing how we will be funded on the back end is, is so numerous. Every year there is a little bit of a mini panic. For those of us who are less spiritual uh, and just like trust, trusted ourselves more, a little mini panic to say we're giving away all this money from October 20th to 26th. And then you, your mind starts to go into like, okay, people are getting paid in the middle of the month. Like, I don't know how we're going to pay our own bills if we're giving it all away. And every single year, God has been crazy, faithful, and generous with us. In our nine years of doing Celebrate Generosity, we've never once missed a rent payment or a paycheck or an obligation to another church plant or ministry we support, not once. 
It's who God has called us to be, and it shapes so much of what we do. It's part of the reason why we rent a building and we don't own one in Ventura. It's part of the reason why as as much as our teams do an amazing job making this feel like a hospitable and a welcoming space, it's always going to be a little bit lacking if we look at maybe what others have. It's going to be a reason our staffs are a lot smaller. We spend less on kids' ministry. Like it is a driving motivation behind a lot of things we can do because the less we spend on ourselves, the more we can give away. And for us, that is a mandate God has given us. And what I love about teaching through this every single year is this is not me browbeating anybody. And while I am doing a little bit of teaching and it may be a little bit convicting for some of us, this is actually a moment to celebrate the kind of people you already are and the kind of churches we already are. This is celebrating God doing a supernatural work in our family of churches to say we're actually less concerned with ourselves because we're more concerned with giving money away. And so you as a church, whether you know it or not, are already generous Things like Laundry Love, the City Center, our Acts 2, like Benevolence Fund. Like there's a lot of money that goes through us as a church and out into our cities, out into needy people in our church, out into those who need it the most. And we're part of a, of a generous family. Like every year we get together and celebrate generosity. And for the last eight years, we've given away over $920,000. That's a lot of money for a church plant, a couple of church plants, a few church plants. That's a lot of money that could be spent on a whole lot of other good things, but because we feel compelled by this generous story of God, and he's made it a part of who we are, we demonstrate that rhythm as a regular yearly practice to give away as much as we possibly can. And in those eight or nine years, we've planted 11 churches. We've been able to build homes in Thailand. We've been able to support pastors in Nepal and around the world. There are incredible local organizations here in Ventura County and organizations we're connected with around the world that are able to do what they do because we have opted for a culture of generosity. And that's not celebrating us, it's not going, yay, us, we're really good, because it really is a supernatural work of God. For us, this is a step in obedience. And it's an invitation for you to join us in that work as well. In an ongoing way, and kind of sporadic celebratory ways, God has wired us to be a generous people. Anthem Church is a generous church. It's who we are, and it's who we're becoming and it's what you're invited into. Whether you've been at Anthem, this is like your first week, or you helped us plant this church, this is who we are, it's who we're becoming, and it's what you're invited into. That's some of the why. That's some of the why of why we give, why we cultivate this culture of generosity. But for us, we wanted to talk about how we do that and particularly trying to remove some of the transactional stigma around generosity and see it as a a fruit of the Holy Spirit in you, a fruit of a life filled with God's presence. And so that's why we use this paradigm of be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did. Because today, the joy of simply being with Jesus changes everything about our lives. The starting point to a fruitful, joyful, powerful life in the kingdom of God is simply being with Jesus. In those big life moments and in the everyday mundane moments, 
cultivating a life of relationship with Jesus who wants a relationship with you. And according to Jesus, the way we are with Jesus today is through his Holy Spirit. This is the first and the primary goal of being an apprentice to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is how we commune with Jesus. This is how we are with him. If you've ever wanted to know what it looks like to build a relationship with Jesus, it's through the ongoing work, the awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to start with what it means to be with Jesus because apart from him, we can do nothing. Our, our fruits and our efforts towards generosity mean nothing if we're not with him. Like our, our growing and sanctification and character and behavior, all of that are nothing if we're not with him. All the good things we are trying to do in our life, all the people we are trying to serve are nothing if we are not with Jesus. This comes down to, to learning to be two places at once especially for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, like drinking coffee at Prospect and being with Jesus, sitting in your community group sharing life and being with Jesus, sitting at work and typing out a report and being with Jesus, like the ongoing life goal of just being with him. So Paul means when he says pray without ceasing. It's this lifestyle of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. My favorite writer is Dallas Willard, says this, He's severely practical about how this takes place in our life. He says, The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. Such gracious language there. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. He's so gracious. This is going to take practice. This is going to happen over time. But as it does happen over time and as we do practice, our minds, our hearts, or souls will constantly come back to him more than all the other things that try to rob our attention and affection in this present world. And the point is, living in a state of constant awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit takes a lifetime of practice. That's why when you talk to people who've been following Jesus for decades, like scripture just leaks out of their mouth. There's a wisdom and a grace and a knowledge to how they live life. It's why we want to be mentored by them. It's why we want to spend time with them. As we live this life with Jesus, living a life with Jesus becomes easier over time. It's hard at first. It takes practice at first to direct and redirect our minds back to God. But over time, as we grow, it actually becomes 
easier. Generosity in the same way is hard at first. One of the recommendations that I give and some of our leaders will give as it pertains to like, like giving and, and kind of our relationship with money is that it doesn't matter how much you give, give something away. If you got weird baggage with the church, give it somewhere else. $20, give it away. Because what's happening is you're unclenching your heart from the hold it has on your wallet. And starting somewhere, practicing somewhere, in the local church or outside, slowly begins the process of unclenching your heart from your wallet. And this, for us as a church, is a regular and yearly opportunity to do that. We benefit nothing from Celebrate Generosity. We give it all away. We're, I'm panicked about our bills. I'm, sometimes I I'm, want to be in step with the Spirit. But sometimes I'm panicky about this because we gain nothing from it. 100% of the money that comes in that week goes out the door. It is a great opportunity for those of you who've never practiced generosity to practice it. To doing it, no, it doesn't gain you anything, it doesn't gain me anything, it doesn't gain us anything. We get to go fund good gospel work around the world. Start somewhere. Because it takes a lifetime of practice, but over time, it actually becomes easier. You see the joy. Even if it hurts in the moment, you have the end in mind. You know it's more blessed to give than receive, and it becomes easy for you. Easier, day by day, as we're with him. Part of today's message and tr what I'm trying to communicate is something important both about God himself and our generous response to God. We've said a number of times as we teach about money, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. You're not that special. God doesn't need your money. He really doesn't. He's after something else. He doesn't embed generosity onto the pages of scripture as a fundraising campaign for his work on earth. His kingdom will go forward whether you chip in or not. That's the reality. But then there's the tension. Why is there so much in Scripture about how we handle money and possessions, about reflecting the generosity of God? We talk openly and excitedly about the things that will happen with the money that you give. I love it. I actually find great encouragement from the fruit of our generosity, and that's not a bad thing. It's not wrong to get excited about what we're pouring into. In fact, we can rejoice at the outcomes of our generosity. We can celebrate generosity, but we want to make sure that we are teaching things in the proper order. More than you giving, more than anyone else receiving, Jesus wants your heart. If he has your heart, the rest of your life will conform to his. If he doesn't, you're always going to be holding something back. More than anyone giving or anyone receiving, he wants the hearts of each person on earth. He wants your worship. He wants your love, your attention, your affection, your adoration. He wants that stuff. He wants the relationship restored and the fullness of his presence in every human being. That's the desire. So when God looks at us, he's looking at our hearts. Throughout the scriptures, we see that God is more concerned with the motives and desires of our hearts than of any outward action, and that our hearts are bent towards him. Money, like anything else, is simply a revealer of where your heart is. I could be having the same conversation with you about your calendar, 
and our culture that idolizes busyness as a badge of honor, where you spend your time reflects what you love. Where you spend your money reflects what you love. Jesus is concerned with your heart. One of the prophets, Hosea, has this line I love. It says, God says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Knowing that if he has those things, if you are all wrapped up in Jesus, all that other stuff follows. One of the things we see constantly throughout the scriptures is God's heart for your heart. He wants you. There are commands to give, yeah, commands to sacrifice, to provide for the poor and the needy, but God has constantly moved all those aside to ensure that his people understand that's not the point. The point is that God is generous and faithful and his people are called to be like him. He's shaping in us his holy image so we should reflect him in our actions. And the reality of the Bible is the more we're with Jesus, the more we become like him. Psalm 23 might be one of the more familiar uh, texts for all of us in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's this great line in Psalm 23, verse 5. And it says, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. The picture of oil in the scripture is like uh, signifying like God's presence with someone. Right, and so as oil is being poured out, that picture that is given us is God's presence being poured out on us. He's with us. He's after us. His very presence is with us. He's abiding with us as we're abiding with him. And to the psalmist, David, the natural reaction is our cup overflows. Like as we're filled with the very presence of God, our cup overflows. As we're with him, we become like him. As we're met in times of need, and faithfulness, our cup overflows. As God miraculously provides, when we're shaking our heads, not knowing what to do, our cup overflows. It's not about what God does to you, it's what he's doing through you. And as we experience the fullness of his presence, our cup overflows. This is the picture we want to use to talk about generosity. We want the fullness of God's presence on us, in us. We want to seek after Jesus and be with him and let that presence be the thing that causes generosity to pour out of us. That's why Paul talks about giving with like a pure motive, not resentful, but cheerful, because it comes from a place of being filled with God, being filled by his presence, experiencing walking in his love and affection for us. And for us, that's the starting place for any talk around generosity is no God experience him. Be filled with his fullness and see what happens. See how your cup spills out onto others, out onto our city, our church family, those we don't even know around the world. Be filled with God's presence and let that inform and affect every part of you. I want to end with two stories Jesus tells. Jesus tells two stories that are back to back in the in, his, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, the biography Matthew tells of Jesus. And as he's telling these stories, he's giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. He says in Matthew chapter 
13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his great joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Second story, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus' teaching here reveals that the truth, the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus himself is the treasure. As we talk about generosity, we have to get he is the treasure. As we talk about our cup overflowing, we have to get he first anoints us with oil. Generosity is not transactional in the scripture. It is the end result of a life filled with God's presence. Knowing Jesus is in and of itself the ultimate treasure that we can ever experience in this life. When we find Jesus, he fills us. He pours out his presence on us. He's with us. He blesses us to be a blessing to those around us. Jesus called it life abundant. Paul called it being filled with all the fullness of God. And this is how Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As we talk about generosity, my first question for you guys, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Are you being filled with all the fullness of God? Because the cup overflows, that happens. It's exciting, we, we cheer it on, we rejoice in it. But that's not as important as where your heart is. And like some very smart people have said before, there are all sorts of metrics for determining where your heart is. Some may not be that comforting to you and I this morning. I want to challenge you to do the hard work. Open up your credit card statement. Open up your calendar. Where's your heart? Is your heart wrapped up in making much of Jesus, or is it something else? Earlier this morning in the, in the prayer time, we do a pre-gathering prayer at nine, and often what, what comes out of there shapes a bit uh, of where we go in the, in the service. And uh, one of the things we're doing is we're going around the circle. There's this line in Psalm 146, put your trust not in princes. There's no salvation in them. And when they die, their, their plans die with them. But hope in God, he is your salvation. Maybe for you, there's a moment of examination and confession that something or someone else has robbed your ultimate satisfaction. And as we respond in just a minute, it may be appropriate for you to just ask the Holy Spirit, what has my attention? What has my affection? What has my full satisfaction? Is that you, Lord? And if it's not, change me. We have an agenda here at Anthem. It's for you to become more like Jesus. We'll be very transparent about that. And if your hope in life, if your satisfaction, your attention, your affection is wrapped up in something or someone else, that doesn't happen and your life is going to suck. It's real talk, guys. But Jesus says life 
and life to the full is found in him alone. I have a couple of questions for you guys. If you're a note-taking kind of person, you can write them down or you can just meditate on them. Uh, but Zach's going to lead us in a time of response, and I want us to, yeah, go ahead and come on up, Zach. I want us to just kind of think around these questions. These are helpful in the self-examination process. First question, do you believe Jesus is that which actually can satisfy you? So the first question is a gospel question. Do you actually believe the gospel? The gospel that Jesus is more than anything else on this earth, that he can satisfy you. If you don't believe that, you do not believe the gospel. Now, that's not to say there are disconnects in how we live that out, but from an intellectual point of view, we as Christians believe Jesus is that which satisfies us the most. And so is there space to say, am I not believing who you said you are? Second question, what are the things competing for ultimate satisfaction in your life? What are the things that are competing? Is it comfort? Is it your kids, your legacy through your kids? Is it your career path and trajectory? Is it having a lot of money in the bank account? Is it self-sustaining? Whatever it is. What are the things competing for ultimate satisfaction in your life? Third question. This is a fun, vision-y kind of question. How would the rest of your life look different if Jesus were your ultimate treasure? The first couple take boldness to actually look inward. The last one takes a bit of Holy Spirit imagination. What could my life look like, Jesus, if you were my ultimate treasure? If every day I'm growing in you being in the thing that is most important in my life, not all the other things, not my kids, not my job, not my classes, not like the adventures I want to have or the next camping adventure or whatever, but what if you were actually the thing that most satisfies me? What could my life look like? Give me a vision for that life. That is a fun prayer. That is a fun thing to ask the Lord. Give me a vision for what my life could look like if you were my ultimate treasure. That's it. That's all I got. Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. So let's do the work of seeing where a heart is.